you know, but what makes science fiction great is the philosophy, you know, the thinking, the the ideas, the 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 speculation. Yes. Speculative fiction. Looking at things in a different way, using science, you know, kind of extrapolated. You take an idea, you know, let's say invisibility. How would you do that? And just extrapolate it. Cinematic fantastic. Batu, Barada, Nikto. I'll show you who I am and what I am. By a werewolf and lives, becomes a werewolf himself. Open the pod bay doors, Hal. I'm sorry, Dave. I'm afraid I can't do that. It's alive! It's alive! It's alive! Hello and welcome to the Cinematic Fantastic Podcast. I'm your host, Jason Weatherford. And your other host, William Weatherford. Get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes as we watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear to the new favorites of today. Hello and welcome to the 20th and last episode of Cinematic Fantastic Season 1. We are not going to be kept to one season, by the way. We've got more stuff to come. Wait, I'm glad you said, you said, the way you said it, you said, this is the last episode of season one, <laughs> and for a second I was going, I just heard somebody's mind going, no! <laughs> and I, you know what? This goes out to you, Mr. Person, who said no in their head, because you're absolutely right. I, You know, we, we have, he, William's right, we got more to come. So much more great quality content to brighten up your day with a, the amazingness of me and my father. Yep. It's cinematic and it's fantastic, and uh, and it's coming to you live and in living color of sound. The sound is full of color. So, first of all, I wanted to give a small little retrospective of how our season's gone. So, you know, first we covered the first, or at least one of the firsts, if there was a first, uh, science fiction movie by George Melies. And then we explored a bit of the 1920s and early horror movies, German Expressionism, and The Lost World's outstanding stop motion. And then Mm -hmm. we covered a big handful of 1932's works, including universal and non-universal horror films, some adventure movies, uh, some of the greats of the early 1930s, and some stinkers too. One in particular. Yeah. And... You know, we've seen movies grow and develop new techniques, King Kong being the biggest development overall. And I, I believe that this is a, you know, a good thing because, you know, all this development is for the cause of, you know, making better stories and, you know, facilitating creativity to show, you know, whatever you wanted. Tell the most grandiose of stories in the entire world, you know. King Kong obviously getting the kudos for that. I mean, who would imagine that you could display a gorilla on screen as if it actually existed before CGI even existed, man. Well, also, I would not uh, overlook the cinematic achievements uh, of the Unchained Camera, the compositing that George Melies used that, that, you know, I think a lot of other directors and producers and special effects uh, guys and gals would owe their existence to. Um so the we're looking at the early days yet, and they're they're learning how to tell stories 
using sound and the, uh, music uh, and and special effects to to do that, and it never stops. It just keeps going. I think that they they they're taking themselves pretty seriously now. They're looking at it very much so, looking at it as an art form. I think, uh, but they're also looking to entertain. How do we entertain people? So we're still in the early days. Um, you know, we have a lot of a lot of directors, producers, writers uh, expressing science fiction as a kind of a darker side of it, a, a warning, you know, fears and things like that. We we get that going forward, you know, in science fiction. But I think that as we go, this does get superimposed with you know cool aliens and uh, they have bug eyes and laser rays. Pew pew. That that does that does bring forward more the entertainment and things like that. There are some elements that are going to come in, I think, in the future, uh, in the future of science fiction, where you know they they can explore some of those deeper elements. But you can you can see where they're trying to to entertain and you know. Uh, whereas they might like to be taken seriously, I think the further you go, um, most times they're just like, uh, this is just a crazy situation. Uh, is it scientifically plausible? Mm, not really, but is it entertaining? Yes. And even still, in the early, early days of Melies and stuff, movies were literally just art. That's all they were. And nowadays, it's you know, transformed more into entertainment, and in particular money. So, you know, a, a lot of that comes from the popcorn that you can sell. I mean, the prices on popcorn are crazy at uh, movie theaters for a reason. So, but now, we are covering a tale by the science fiction juggernaut, a- at least in my opinion, H.G. Wells, the Invisible Man. The Invisible Man. Yes, and... S- do not confuse with the 2020 version. We're doing the uh, of the movie. We're doing the 1933, The Invisible Man, and there has been a lot more search results for the 2020 version. Um, I think it's because you know, I think Universal are like trying to, you know, reprise their monster movies. I, I think they made a Mummy movie. That one stank. They made a Dracula movie. That one stank. And I think they also made a Frankenstein, and it stank. There was Dracula Untold, yeah. and it wasn't very popular. It was kind of telling the, t- the story of you know Dracula when he was Vlad Tepish, the Impaler, and they were kind of uh, connecting up the vampire legend. And I, Frankenstein. I, Frankenstein, I would not say is part of Universal's deal to kind of... The thing that they started doing... Like in 2015, they started to trying to do this. They thought, okay, well, we're we're one of the first ones to do a kind of a cinematic universe because of the connection between Frankenstein and Wolfman, uh, and then House of Dracula, House of Frankenstein, I think was what it's called. Those are kind of monster mash kind of movies where where you have different creatures and characters from the Universal Studios uh, monster movies kind of interacting. You know, the foundations of Halloween as well. Yeah, exactly. And they were thinking we can do. Uh, a cinematic universe. Everybody and their mama wanted to do a cinematic universe. They're even talking about doing a G.I. Joe cinematic universe. Especially with Marvel on the table. Oh, Marvel inspired all of that. They were like, oh, wow, cinematic universe. We have to do that. So their first foray into it was 2017's The Mummy. They kind of uh, pulled in Dracula Untold, kind of like, it's like they saw him in the back of the room and went, oh, come on, you can be part of our gang, you can be part of our, our, our deal here. And he's like, what? I didn't know I was part. Yeah, you're part of this. 
So I don't think it was really part of it, but they kind of went, yeah, it is. The Mummy 2017 was not, it was not great. It really wasn't. Uh, I have fonder memories for the Boris Karloff version and the uh, the one with Brendan, Brendan Fraser from 99. Uh, those, are, those are much more true to the spirit, I think, in some ways of The Mummy. Of course, it's more of an adventure tale uh, in the twenty in uh, 1999. Anyway, the point is they tried and they failed. They really did. They had, uh, I think they were going to have Johnny Depp be the invisible man. Uh, it just, it, it didn't all, it didn't work out. Uh, when they didn't see the return, uh, from the mummy, they were like, well, maybe this isn't the best idea. They even took a photo of all the actors that were possibly going to be in these things. Uh, they did remake the Wolfman with, um, Benicio del Toro. Uh, and in the special effects that some of that in is really well done. So they remade that, but that didn't, it was very much an homage to the, to the universal stuff. And we'll talk about that when we get to Wolfman, uh, next season, but, but, you know, to kind of keep, to keep it on point here and on track, they, the, the, the invisible man, the, the recent one that they did in 2020 was more about the, the victim of the invisible man. And it was, it wasn't a serum. It was a suit. And this suit kind of uh, had some scientific basis. It basically, anything that uh, it saw in front of it, it would, or behind it, it would project on the front skin of it. So you, it's completely invisible. And from what I can tell, I guess they didn't, you know, take much of the, the story. They just took, you know, the formula. They took, um, how about we have, you know, an invisible man as a hitman. Maybe he's trying to, you know, kill some people. Well, in this, he's... Uh, in the new Invisible Man, he is—he uh, has faked his own death and made it look like his wife is crazy or something. And she keeps saying she keeps seeing a ghost or seeing him in the house. It's—it's it's kind of like he's stalking her. Um, so it kind of is more about her as the as the victim and turning it around and going, "Well, I'm going to fight back." And so it made the Invisible Man a, a kind of a scary, almost like a slasher. Uh, a villain like like oh my goodness where's the invisible man he could he could kill me you know that's that's kind of the what made that uh, well done and it, it but was that what, wasn't really the point of the invisible man. no no it wasn't we're gonna see quite a few hg wells movies going forward the shape of things to come are things to come War of the world war of the worlds in the 1950s we've got a time machine oh time machine is a real favorite of mine uh, there's also one called, I don't think we're going to see it, but it's called Food of the Gods. It's about uh, animals that, that eat this feed that uh, makes them gigantic. So you got giant rats and giant creatures and all this kind of stuff. It's uh, it's really creepy. But I can't think of any other H.G. Wells um, stuff off the top of my head. But I do know that we did a little bit of H.G. Wells stuff when we did... Um, a trip to the moon had a little had some H.G. Wells inspiration. Anyway, yeah, um, Invisible Man was written in 1897, so quite a few years for people to be uh, have having known that it existed and read it. And even still, the the basis um, for like the idea of the Invisible Man, H.G. Uh, Wells got it from uh, Plato, Plato's Republic. You know that uh, it was because uh, in that book, I, th- I think there's like three books and it's just like one book, you know, three novels or three or four, I, I-, I guess a couple. And um, in one of them, there is a uh, little part where there's a, you know, a ring of invisibility from using it. 
um, the main character, you know, gets the idea that, you know, with being undetectable, you could do literally anything, you know, steal, murder, a anything, and you'd get the freedom uh, with the invisibility, and that freedom would uh, give you godliness. And, and that's probably what planted the seed into him. Overall, uh, it seems H.G. Wells was pretty fond of Plato's Republic um, in his adolescence from reading it. He's he's a philosopher at heart, which I think a yeah, lot of the Plato is a philosopher, so he has good ideas. And then H.G. Wells goes, "These are good ideas," and then he takes them for the science fiction, and the philosophy is still there. H.G. Wells is a philosopher as well, is what I meant. He he had a lot of ideas. Uh, you know about politics and all these kind of things. He he interweaved it uh, into his stories. You know, like the haves and the have-nots. You know, you have the and the ones who are, are who are tread underfoot. You know, that's the more like the Morlocks. You know, you got the Morlocks and the Eloy. You've got this uh, interplay of class system. And so he he tried. You know, the best science. It reminds me of Star Trek. The way Star Trek tried to you know display the these elements about you know politics and people. And uh, how we interplay with each other and put that into a science fiction, um, you know, you know, put those elements into that world. So, again, H.G. Wells, very heady and philosophical. You know, you, he, he kind of couches it in a science fiction story like, let's say, War of the Worlds. Um, if you think about it, I think it's a it's a commentary on uh, colonialism because the British people are the ones being attacked by these giant, you know, tripod uh Creatures, aliens. They're, well, they're they're mechs. They're like mechs with aliens inside them. And oh, the shoes on the other foot now. I think we've talked about this before, but the shoes on the other foot now. Now you're the ones being colonized. That is why I say that he's a science fiction juggernaut because he just he pioneered a ton of science fiction stuff and like all the philosophies as well that he had. And he put it into there, spread it out into the world. That's what he was, you know, most known for. Um, he did do some nonfiction stuff as well, but his science fiction work definitely makes him a science fiction juggernaut. And a lot of the ideas that he had, he really made you think. And it wasn't just, oh, here's a spooky story, or oh, here's an interesting tale. Like a lot of the pulp writers, I hate to say, but a lot of the pulp writers of the 30s and 40s, I mean, you know, even the 50s, it was it was a lot about entertainment and how can we you know excite uh, you know the the readers and usually the readers were young boys you know but what makes science fiction great is the philosophy you know the thinking the the ideas the 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 speculation yes the speculative fiction looking at things in a different way using science you know kind of extrapolated you take an idea you know let's say invisibility how would you do that. And just extrapolate it. But the thing is, this movie is not very science fiction-y at all. They really do seem to suck that out. Well, yeah, well, let's, let's put it this way. I, I think that you, you have to do a little bit of what they call, what's called verisimilitude. Verisimilitude means uh, uh, a simulation of truth or, or an appearance of truth. It doesn't look right. Does it, does it sound right? So they're using terms like about, you know, about, you know, they're using atomic, uh, they're using words about molecules, uh, chemicals, you know, uh, real or imagined. It sounds scientifically plausible. So you kind of buy into it and your suspension of disbelief kind of goes out the window and you go, hey, this could possibly happen. But there's, of course, 
the science of the Invisible Man kind of breaks down when you really think about it. But, um, you know, I, I, I think there's been some commentary that light passing through someone, light, in order for you to see, light has to hit the back of your, your eyeball, I guess your retina or whatever it is, uh, your cornea. I don't know. What's the back? <laughs> this thing, it has to hit the back of your eye and bounce back forward uh, for you to see anything. Otherwise, you'd be blind. And, and because light is supposed to, to come in through a point, through a, a, a small point on your eye, if, you're, if light is coming through all of your eye, you would be overwhelmed by the amount of light coming in. Um, I think that in the book, they do talk about... He... They do talk about a lot of that stuff, and um, we get the Invisible Man also. He talks about um, how apparently all flesh and blood and all that stuff is actually transparent, but it just, you know, refracts and reflects enough light so that we can see it. But if you make it stop uh, reflecting and refracting like as much, then it becomes, you know, transparent. You know, talking about, for instance, if you know you put water in paper, then the paper becomes transparent because it doesn't reflect and refract, apparently. Yeah, he, he uses some, some scientific elements, and you kind of, okay, you just buy into it. You know, don't think about it too, too much uh, and just have a good time. Obviously, the movie doesn't do this. No, it doesn't, and the movie has a story that it's wanting to tell, and yeah, it's not as 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 heady as as the book is. The book is a little bit more, uh, you know, it kind of goes more into his, uh, into Griffin or the main main character that go, goes into his plan for what he what he's going to do or wants to do with uh, with these with these abilities that he's given himself due to the in, invisibility serum. So, with that said, you know, uh, let's make the production of this movie visible by focusing on it. And uh, bringing into focus. All right. So um, now Dracula came out in 1931 and it was a success, right? Yeah, obviously. <laughs> yeah, obviously. Well, so Universal was going, okay. Some of the some people were thinking, okay, so what do we want to do next? I think, uh, am I right? It was, was Robert, Robert Flory was involved. Was he later involved with Rue Morgue? Um. I, I maybe think I'm so. think maybe I'm thinking crazy. Maybe you can look that up or whatever. But um, two people, Richard Shear and Robert Flory, they were talking to uh, Universal about an adaptation of The Invisible Man, uh, probably about as early as 1931, so a little bit after Dracula, because they saw it was very popular. But it didn't really catch Carl Limley and Carl Limley Jr.'s attention. They were kind of going more toward. They were thinking more about Frankenstein because they had some stuff on the table ready to go there. Oh, he was on Murders of the Rue Morgue. Yes. Ah, I kept thinking Robert Flory and uh, Murders of the Rue Morgue. I guess I was right. I did. I just kept putting those two things together for some reason, and I couldn't tell why. So, and of course, you know, they did make Frankenstein, but that didn't mean that while they were doing that, uh, they weren't trying to push those things and the details of. This movie and how they how they tried to make it were crazy. Okay, they went back and forth with several uh, writers, several directors, maybe uh, Se- was, several actors for the Invisible Man himself. Including, well, you know Boris Karloff. Boris Karloff, he's so good. They're just like we've got to get him for this role as well, even though he doesn't seem the very you know sciencey kind of type. He pulled out. Uh, he's played mad scientists, you know, later on in his career. Um, so he's not just the, you know, the outcast, you know, monster. He's played scientist a lot. But 
to sum it up, after all the stuff that, that Boris Karloff went through, uh, he finally ended up, I think he was asking for, I think this was after Frankenstein when he, when they finally were getting him to try to be an invisible man. And he wanted more money than I think that they were willing to pay. Uh, I think because the guy knew his worth. I mean, he saw what Frankenstein was doing, Buku Bucks. So he was like, he asked for a little bit more and they were like, I don't know if we can do that. While Frankenstein was being filmed, they did buy the rights to Invisible Man from H.G. Wells uh, for about $10,000, which is paltry a paltry sum now. Adjust it for inflation. Adjust it for inflation. He did want uh, script approval, which means that anytime they made a, a change in the script or they or they you know, updated it, they had to send him a copy and he get he get the final look-see. And it. this movie, it does really seem really like the book i mean you can see all the events out there they just all they do is really simplified it but who am i to tell the version i read uh was the great illustrated classics version and that one is obviously simplified but it's an abr- it's abridged it's abridged somewhat but another thing is that when you go into the actual book then you go and you see a bunch of archaic language. And for me being a child, I probably would not have read it uh, concerning it. Even still now, I'm reading it, and I'm like, what do these words mean um, in this context of the time? Yeah, it's it's expanding your vocabulary, too. The great illustrated classics version, it, it, it you know gets rid of that archaic language into something that you can understand as a child. And I just love this book as a child. I also uh, had The War of the Worlds. I still have both of them. Um, The great illustrated classic version of Invisible Man and War of the Worlds. And I just love those so much. That's what got me into science fiction. And it's just... I... This was also the first... um, old universal movie that i watched with my dad was the invisible man because i was like when i knew that there was a movie to this book that i loved then i was like hey can we watch it and you know i was a nerd from <laughs> a nerd from childhood so did did we not watch that when we were we went on vacation uh was this the time we went on vacation down to florida and i had it on on the laptop and i and i hooked it up to the tv well, we did th- watch it. Yeah. We did watch it while we were down so. there. Yeah. We did watch it while we were down there. Mom was like, I, they're killing people. I don't know if he should see this, uh, which I thought was funny. Um, but yeah, uh, the, the I do remember the those illustrated uh, classics. I, I read those when I was a kid, too. So those those have been out for quite a while. There's a lot. and that, But they get you hooked in. And I think eventually you can, if you want to, you can graduate up to reading the actual books because there's a lot more of the text there. And that's what I've been doing because the Great Illustrated Classics version gets rid of a ton of other stuff as well. But yeah, if you want to introduce your child to, you know, nerdy stuff, um, maybe grab them a copy of, you know, the Invisible Man Great Illustrated Classics. Um, just the idea of the Invisible Man is a really great idea. So it's a good read. I think you can get a lot of those in a, in a big set for like not a lot of money either. I mean, they're really inexpensive. I think you could probably find those for really good. Anyway, I think uh, we don't get any money from selling those <laughs> as as part of our part of our uh, uh, you know uh, patronage or whatever you might. You can you buy those. We, we won't get a penny. We promise. We're not a shill for them. We promise. Um, so. 
it went from uh, director from director to director. It eventually ended up in James Whale's hands. They did cycle it through a lot of you know Frankenstein people, as well as you know the Invisible Man being you know Boris Karloff, you know Abel Belgosi, I think uh, Colin Clive. Um, a, a ton of other people as well. They're just like, who, who, who do we want to use for this? Um, it could honestly be anyone concerning that he's invisible. So <laughs> it's very confusing. It is. They, they, the, you know, one of the writers, they had seen a play that he did. They were like, okay, really like that. You know, I'm going to make a version that, you know, incorporates some of this book and some of this book that I've been having ideas about and, you know, incorporated it. And then HGLs was like, eh, that's too far. Don't, don't, don't do that. He's like, how about you? I bet you he was thinking, uh, oh, g- good show, sir. But how about you incorporate some of my novel that I wrote <laughs> r- rather than. Rather than that 1931 novel by Philip Wiley called The Murder Invisible, can you please not use that one? Why don't you use the one I wrote? Grand Central Station is not grand in my in my imagination. Yes. I, I don't think... It probably was around when he wrote the book, but who knows. I think radio was in its infancy when he also wrote that. So, And this book heavily featured... This movie heavily features radio, so <laughs> yeah, it's 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 modernized for the time. Um, but the the murder invisible was a book by Philip Wiley. Of course, Philip Wiley wrote another book called the Gla- called Gladiator, which is actually some elements in that uh, inspired uh, the character of Superman. Uh, some of those early pulp, you know, superhero characters that had great strength and great agility. Anyway, so there was some stuff in the book. Uh, like an invisible octopus, invisible rats, uh, something about blowing up Grand Central Station like William talked about. So there were script issues and they went back and forth. Or, well, what do we want to put in this? You know, some directors would, would I, mean, I mean, James Whale pulled out at some point uh, because he did not want to be pigeonholed into being a horror director because of Frankenstein. And he tried to, you know, direct other stuff as well, I think, but then that didn't do so well. Oh, they didn't so do he so retreated. hot. He retreated back into the pigeonhole. It's not a pigeonhole. He's good at it. He knows where his goodness is at, I guess. He has a good eye for it, and I think that that when you're good at something, uh, rather than, you know, pull away from it, it's be- it's good to lean into it, you know? You've got to have an eye for this stuff, but... It also has to bounce into your eye and not be invisible. So, <laughs> so anyway, yeah, Claude Rains um, ended up for this role, I think. Or, yes, 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 he did. And then we also have Gloria Stewart, who we saw in The Old Dark House. I think it was just The Old Dark House. Yes, uh, I, I don't, I'm not sure if we see Gloria Stewart again, but we we did kind of we did we did see you know we did see. Some of some of James Whale's stuff. We saw him in saw him do Frankenstein. We saw him do the Old Dark House. So we kind of know what his what his skill is with angles and with introduction of characters and and suspense and making you feel for that. Um, also, uh, I don't know if you noticed this, William, and probably yeah. Before we even get get to the plot, I'll mention this: a grandfather clock gets knocked down in both movies. Yes. Yes. I guess it simplifies. It symbolizes James Whale. James Whale is the grandfather clock, and he is about to go crash and burn. I think he's saying it's about time for me to knock down a clock. So uh, okay. that's terrible. That's terrible. All right. So there were multiple drafts of this, and, and Wells kept rejecting uh, drafts. Whale Whale came back, and then he left again. 
Uh, and then they actually, I think that they they had a loss of money on some different stuff in between Frankenstein and, and the Invisible Man. And some other things came up. Like, I think while they're waiting for the Invisible Man to kind of uh, get visible or this project come into focus, uh, they did the old Dark House. And he did really well with that. Um, it's still, I think the fact that Karloff was doing really well caused him to ask for more money. When they eventually got Claude Rains, this was his first American... Well, I'll talk about Claude Rains in just a, a minute. It's really interesting to, to learn about him. He actually was... He was on stage, and he did a one silent movie, but he did some stage work. But his gravelly kind of voice that he has, as uh, that he's famous for, he didn't always have that. He... Um, he actually had a very thick Cockney accent. You know, oh, right, go, 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 go. You know, I can't do a cock. I cannot do a Cockney accent. It's terrible. But if you if you look it up, you know what a Cockney accent sounds like. It's very hard to understand what they're what they're saying if you don't understand the specifics of the slang and the and the where you're and, and if you haven't grown up in that area, it's hard to pick up the uh, pick up what they're saying. But he he also had a little bit of a speech impediment and um, a stutter. So once he got over and through those, uh, especially uh, from from voice training, and he learned his craft very early on. He and we would definitely know that he sounds very good. His voice is amazing, and that's why they chose him because he's invisible and he's covered up in a like a mummy wrapping. <laughs> it wouldn't matter what he looks like. Um, it just matters that um, his voice is good. Yeah. While they were filming, uh, uh, Claude Rains a- asked James Whale to let him act more emotionally, uh, asking him if he could try to express something with his eyes. And, and Whale said... That would be very difficult. Whale said, but Claude, old fellow, what are you going to do it with? You haven't any face. So you're absolutely invisible. Plus you have goggles that go over your eyes. So, and how do you emote with your eyes if they're covered up? You can't emote with a big block of goggle. Yeah, and, and James uh, Whale, the director, he didn't fully tell all the details of the role to to Claude Rains. I think that he's trying to not, you know, scare him off the role or, or you know, kind of say, well, they're going to basically get your body movements your head, your head and arms and all that, all that, and your hands and all that positioning, your voice, uh, they're going to get that. That's how you're going to emo- emote your character through that um, because they can't see you. But he's an, he's an actor's actor. I would say that Gloria Stewart did say that he was a difficult uh, actor to be with because he took it very seriously. And, of course, not to say she didn't either, but he was probably, uh, he could have been very a perfectionist. He could have, go, you know, going, I can do that better or, you know, or keep pushing himself. And he, he it was a craft to him. It was something you also worked at. It, it, it's something that you found, uh, you know, as you pushed into these roles. And when you have somebody like that, it's it's not easy to work near them sometimes because of their drive. But honestly, it it, it makes you a better actor. Um, a lot of people that have been around Claude Rains had nothing but great things to say about him as as a craftsman. So the some of the other actors that were in this, uh, I don't know the guy who played uh, Doctor Kemp. Um, I don't know a lot of his works. Uh, it lists. On on, on uh, Wikipedia, it lists a lot of stuff that he's been in. I don't know a lot of the stuff that he's been in. I do know that the guy who played Dr. Cranley, who was Flora Cranley's dad, and uh, I think that that guy right there, um, I think he plays... Wait, 
he did. I don't know of anything else that he was in, but I, I think, give me a second here. Yes. Um, he's Henry Travers, uh, played him and he was, he played a very famous character. If anybody has ever watched, uh, uh, TNT or Turner classic movies or whatever about Christmas, there's a movie that gets played every Christmas. Do you know what it is? It's a wonderful life. Thank you. And, and he plays Clarence, the angel, Clarence Oddbody, the angel who he helps uh, Jimmy Stewart's character. I still have yet to watch that movie, just so you know. We can watch it anytime, I guess. He, but. We can, yeah. He's depressed. Jimmy Stewart wants to jump off a bridge. Um, and who would show up but Clarence? Oh, Clarence. Clarence Oddbody, an angel. He's trying to earn his wings. Uh, he needs to do a good uh, deed here on Earth and help a, a weary soul who, who needs his help. And he makes a deal with uh, Jimmy Stewart's character to let Jimmy see uh, Jimmy Stewart's character see see something uh, to let him let him see something that's that changes his life and maybe lets him think that it is a wonderful life. And in the case of the VeggieTales movie of which that I have watched and also enjoyed, which was also based on It's a Wonderful Life, uh, the the RKO version, at least I think it's RKO, uh, yeah. the one that we're talking about, <laughs> um, that would be seeing him in the future with a um, spray cheese business. I guess. I he, he there is a business, yes, and he does have and a future. future he does. Bro- he does forget, you know, his family as well for that role. So it makes him rethink his life choices and go, um, you know, better relationship with my family. I guess. Yes. In answer to the special effects, they started filming in. Uh, I, I'm going to say this. This is going to be crazy. You probably won't believe this, but principal photography of the movie began at the end of June and concluded in late August. That's like three months. I mean, that's not. That's not bad. That's not bad. I mean, I guess you're filming an invisible person, so you don't have much to film. But I'm ching. The but I'm ching. The special effects though took another two months to do. That would make sense. And it was done in, in secrecy. They said that it had something to do with mirrors. Uh, they, were, they told the public that because uh, they didn't want to tell them how, how they did the special yeah, effects. Yeah, because when the people would do the public could watch it later, they would go like, there's floating objects, you know, doing things. And they would not know that this is possible or how they did it um, until watching the movie. And nowadays we know that this was accomplished with, you know, maroon screen, uh, green screen, but maroon and strings and strings. Here's what they did. They took the set, right? And they covered it completely in black velvet because it's non-reflective. It's not shiny. Um, they did that with it and it had a full uh, body suit, like a body stocking kind of thing made out of uh, black velvet. And they had the little eye holes. That's all he could see out of. Of course, they had to go back and erase the eyes, you know, out of the, out, out of the shots. But that's how that's how they did those. They filmed it twice, like once with the set, once with the in the regular area and once with the, the other set that was covered with velvet. Um, they also used, uh, you know, automatic opening doors and, you know, f- I guess the whole fishing line, you know, they usually use fishing line to have like objects float through. So they used a kind of a combination of that kind of thing. But the reception of it was very good. Um, it did it did break records at um, at some of the New York locations uh, and, and also Los Angeles. Now, here's the thing. This movie has, quote, sequels. And yes, we're going to watch them. Uh, these sequels 
have little to nothing uh, of, of the barest tissue to connect it to this original. They, they usually use the name Griffin to connect him to the original character somehow. And they also use uh, an invisibility serum. Um, other than that, they're most, most of them are not truly related to the original. Um, we're going to watch them anyway. They're not as good, I would say. They're okay. There's, there's even one that's kind of more of a comedy called The Invisible Woman. Uh, Universal still considers those that part of this series, but um, that's, a, that's a little bit of a stretch at best. There's also a Abbott and Costello Meet the Invisible Man. Abbott and Costello is usually where the monster movie sagas end, from what I can tell. Um, because they they did those series, and I think they also did the the House of uh, series as well, and then that capped off the monster, the Universal monster movie era. They started going more into a- aliens and 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 uh, UFOs and stuff like that because that that's what captured the mind of the public at the time is UFOs and aliens and green moon men from Mars. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. So. I would also like to speak about a a tiny little portion of this podcast, which also happens to be a tiny portion of the film. The music. Yeah. That was like 10 minutes long. (laughs) Well, I guess it was because, you know, RKO'd had, you know, King Kong out uh, or was about to pull it out. Who knows? Um, And Universal's kind of playing catch up. But uh, next season... Um, we would be able to see uh, Universal uh, catch up to it as well. Um, I will deluge that it is uh, the Black Cat of 1934 that we're starting with next season. Yes, uh, and of course, uh, at the end of the podcast, I'll, I'll ask you if you want to tell them what we have in store. We'll throw some of the names of the movies that we're going to be reviewing in the next next season. Plus, we'll talk about some special bonus uh, features that we're gonna we're gonna do in between season. Yes, um, we rather I uh, have been trying to keep it hush hush, but yeah, this is our plan to do bonus episodes. Um, our first little batch of them are going to be, um, after the season ends in between seasons, but yeah, we're going to have some juicy bonus episodes with some bonus movies that we're going to cover, um, in the theming of months. So we're going to have, you know, a batch of four movies and call it a month, uh, and probably release it in a month as well. So look forward to that. It's going to be pretty cool. As you're saying with the reception. Yeah, the reception was was very well. It did um, open plenty of doors for Claude Rains because this was his first role. He would definitely get some some more uh, roles out of this. Let's talk about Claude Rains for just a moment, and then I'll go into what's or what some of the movies are that we're actually going to be seeing him in again. Um, all right, so Claude Rains, uh, of course, his, his, his full name is William Claude Rains. He was born. In 1889, if you notice that that's like, you know, the the Visible Man would have been written, uh, probably he would have been able to pick it up, you know, at being nine years old. He probably would have been able to pick it up if it would have been for, you know, kids. So he was, he's a British actor. He's been in a lot of stuff he that we would know. Uh, he was in Visible Man, 1933. He's in The Adventures of Robin Hood, 1938, as Prince John. Uh, we will see him there. He's also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington in 1939, which stars, um, oh my goodness, okay, I'm going to have to say it because everybody's going to kill me for, you know, it's Jimmy Stewart. <laughs> yeah, The Wolfman in 1941, He I, I know that role very well. He plays 
uh, Lon Chaney Jr.'s father. Uh, Lon Chaney Jr. plays uh, Lawrence Talbot, and he plays his father, Sir John. Uh, that's his father. He also he's also in Casablanca, which uh, has Humphrey Bogart, who Casablanca also has Conrad Veidt. Conrad Veidt, we last saw him in the, the cabinet of Dr. Caligari. Yes. It has been so long it has we've been. seen him. Plus, uh, uh, Claude Rains is also in a movie called King's Row, and King's Row, uh, I know that movie because the opening theme to it... Sounds like Star Wars. Sounds like Star Wars. Yeah, you have to look it up on YouTube if you don't believe me. Yeah, you know, um, we'll just hum it for you. It should be as easy as, you know, going instead of da, 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 instead it goes dun, 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 and then stays on that one note, and then it continues. So he st- John Williams stole a lot. It rather, it's inspiration. You know, he's, it's he stole probably, from the best. public domain. Right. You know, this is probably like 1940s, so it's really old. Right, exactly. I don't know how long. I think Lawrence of Arabia is actually like two and a half to three hours. Uh, Lawrence of Arabia with uh, with Peter O'Toole, he was in that. Uh, and he also was in The Greatest Story Ever Told with uh, Max von Sydow as Jesus Christ. Uh, in Greatest Story Ever Told that came out in 1965, and who uh, did Claude Rains play? King Herod. Ah, yeah. I guess that would make sense. A small little bit. Yeah, yeah. Also, uh, he, he won a Tony Award uh, for, of course, Tony Awards are presented for people for their stage acting. He's also four-time nominee for as Best Supporting Actor for an Academy Award for many different roles. Obviously, not the Invisible Man, concerning that he plays the titular role. Now he was grew up very poor. Um, and this is the sad part. He had, and it's uh, also kind of fitting as well because uh, the Invisible Man also was a poor scientist. Wow, I didn't know that. Um, th- th- that's something I didn't know. Uh, uh, um, so we'll talk about it a little bit later. Oh uh, yeah, I find well, we, that interesting. Yeah. So he he had many different brothers and sisters. They, but due to hunger issues at the time, uh, and the and the lifestyle everybody led, you know, they they all passed away, and all he was left with was was just. Uh, three three siblings, uh, two other siblings are all that's left. Him and the other two, you know, it was a miracle that we even have Claude Rains. So he had a speech impediment and a very thick Cockney accent. In fact, his daughter uh, sometimes he, he he would he would go back into his Cockney accent to do so, uh, old songs or old stories he would tell in that Cockney accent, and she said she couldn't tell what he was saying. So his father was an actor, and when he was little, he would spend a lot of time in the theaters. And he was surrounded by actors, stagehands, people behind the scenes. Um, he saw actors as well as the day-to-day running of the theater, like what it would t- what it took to make that thing go. He did uh, go to America in 1912. He knew that there were some New York theaters they were offering a lot. But whenever uh, World War One came, he was like, "Hey, America's great, but I love England. I'm going to serve her uh, in the London Scottish uh, Regiment along fellow actors Basil Rathbone." Uh, Ronald Coleman, Herbert Marshall, and Cedric Hardwick. Hardwick. I've seen Cedric Hardwick, I think, once, but Basil Rathbone, I know him very well. And this is what I know him as. I think he plays the Sheriff of Nottingham in The Adventures of Robin Hood, starring Errol Flynn. And this movie we are going to do. It is considered an adventure movie, if you want, or a fantasy, if you want to do that, because I don't think Robin Hood really existed in the form that he did in the book. That's a hot take. But Basil Rathbone also played, uh, I believe, Sherlock Holmes. 
uh, many times. So there you go, man. There's your one of your favorite uh, characters. Um, okay, so there was a in World War Two. There was a gas attack. I'm sorry, World War One. World War One. They used like gases to attack people. They used these bombs with gas in them, and yeah, it, chlorine it, bombs. Yeah. Yeah, in this case, it was, I don't know what gas it was, but he lost 90% of the vision in his right eye, and he had vocal cord damage as well, which might have uh, uh, lended credence to the thought that he, that's where he got his gravelly voice. Uh, After the war ended, he he went back, he stayed in England, he continued acting there, he got rid of his Cockney accent, speech impediment. But not so much his gravelly voice. I mean, you can hear his gravelly voice, especially when we have the Invisible Man in his fury. That's what I remember him as. Uh, You know, I I never heard him before the the gravel. And a really good place where you can also hear his gravelly voice, skip all the way to the beginning of the episode, remember where you are right now. Um, We have... uh, as part of our intro right now, one of the clips is of the Invisible Man saying, I'll show you what I am and who I am and what I am. What I am, yeah. And from that, you can hear how gravelly his voice is. It's so easy. Technology, man. Just boop, boop, and you're done. You know, he not only knows what he's doing, he taught others how to do it. And uh, John Gielgud and Charles Lawton, a.k.a. Dr. Moreau, Quasimodo, too. But Dr. Moreau, again, the island Dr. Moreau, written by H.G. Wells, you know, to get the picture. Right. That was also one of his That's best. That's another, yeah, connection. The Invisible Man, War of the Worlds, and uh, the island Dr. Moreau were among his best. So, uh, Sir John Gilgood, an act, a very famous actor, he said, The London stage suffered a great loss when Claude Rains deserted it for motion pictures. But when I see him now on the screen and remember him, I must admit that the London stage's loss was the cinema's gain. And the striking virtuosity that I witnessed as a young actor is now there for audiences everywhere to see for all time. I'm so glad of that. Yeah, people really liked this dude. Um, Much later, he would, you know, be known for one of the finest actors of the 20th century. Yes, absolutely. But but I will tell you this: his first screen test for a movie, um, you know, with a with, for RKO, uh, it was not great. But when he did the Invisible Man, he was overheard uh, in the next room. Uh, they 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 heard him doing it, and they said that voice because in a way. Isn't that the best way to get a street screen test of the Invisible Man? Because you're not being seen, you're being heard. So is I think I thought that was great. That's a great way for someone to notice him. And um, as a note, this movie does make a little use of voiceovers. Obviously, they use this. Um, they can and have been able to insert, um, you know, audio into a, a movie from. Probably the Inception, maybe even that's how they actually make sound film, is they take the audio from the uh, camera and they put it into the film and mix it around and stuff. But yeah, they do make some use of voiceovers, especially for the Invisible Man and the radio in this movie as well, which I find interesting. Because as you can hear, it's not directional noise, it just it's coming from like the screen overall the camera so that that's because it's a voiceover doing the radio work right absolutely so and and of course claude rains's agent was a family friend of carl uh, limley but who wasn't a family friend of carl limley or he a fam- established many relations with all sorts of people relations as in friend friendships well he also he also a lot of his family members uh worked in in the biz 
Remember that that there was that there was that poem uh, where something about they were rhyming the word family with with Limley. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, right. Because everybody was related to him somehow or another. Uh, so he signed a multi-picture deal with uh, Warner Brothers to be able to be loaned out to other studios, um, about $750,000 over seven years. Okay, so he he played... Okay, there's an actress that he was a good friend, that he worked with, who, who he met when she was very young, starting out acting. Her name is Betty Davis. She's very, very famous actress, but he did his uh, role of Prince John in The Adventures of Robin Hood. He, he portrayed it kind of like her, uh, very... He did it kind of a, a, a an older, effeminate uh, woman is how he played it. Also, uh, The Adventures of Robin Hood's co-director, Michael Curtis, kind of taught him a lot about film acting, what to do and what not to do in front of the camera, more of what not to do. So he's been in a, yeah, he's been in a lot of stuff. Um, he also he also played Eric in The Phantom of the Opera, a remake of the 1920s movie, and that came out in 1943. Now, a lot of the people that, that, that knew him remembered him very well. Uh, and knew that he was he was very dedicated to his craft. Um, he knew, he knew the whole script up upside down and sideways. You know he he did pass away um, in 1967 at the age of 77. He was a chronic alcoholic. He had cirrhosis of the liver. Um, it's sad that we when we talk about actors at the end of their career, we do have a sometimes you know sometimes they just pass away. Sometimes they pass away of of really horrible things that happened. On his tombstone, which he designed himself, it says, All things once are things forever. Soul, once living, lives forever. Of course, uh, we're going to see him again. We saw him in The Visible Man. We're going to see him again in, in 1938's The Adventures of Robin Hood um, as Prince John uh, in The Wolfman. Uh, we're all, uh, also, just to let you know, we're not going to watch this one, but he actually, there was a remake of The Lost World. He played uh, Professor Challenger. Uh, that was in 1960. Pretty cool. Um, another person that Dad also mentioned on this film was uh, Una O'Connor. Now, from watching this movie, I don't know if this is exactly her fault or her personality or if she, you know, did this specifically for this movie or if she, this is her personality. Um, but in the, at least in this movie, she's the most annoying character ever. Yes. She wails yeah. over everything. And we can play clips here. Yes, please play it. Your ears have now disappeared. They have become invisible because of the absolute, you know, wailing. She wails for no reason. I mean, I, she's worried yeah, over her maybe. husband, as we'll see later. <laughs> it's over the top. It is it's over the top. Very over the top. She, she though, she's she's not. This is not common in her acting roles. But I do think when she did stuff for Universal, she did really lay it on thick. But yeah, she would be the adventure, uh, the adventures of Robin Hood. Um, she would also be in Bride of Frankenstein um, as well. And, um, you know, she also, it says in 2020, was listed number 19 on the Irish Times list of Ireland's greatest film actors. We've talked about this once before, unless I was talking about Scotland's, if they even have a version. But yeah, this I don't was think Irish. So. Uh, Uno Connor was Irish, and um, even her last name before she changed it was uh, McLeod, 
which sounds very Irish. They're both Irish. They're both Irish. So uh, there's a couple, there's a, a couple cameos in this to, to point out. Uh, uh, Dwight Fry. We do get Dwight Fry. In fact, here are all of his lines. Can you tell us what plans you've got for capturing him? Yes, I know, but have you any special secret means of getting him? Why not put wet tar on all the roads, then chase the black soles of his feet? Yeah. He, he does barely get a little spot in this movie, but they're like, you know what, Dwight Fry from Dracula and Frankenstein, those were very popular. Uh, Dracula plays more of a role um, as being one of the main characters, at least in my opinion, in my heart. But they threw him in here because he's like, and eh, we we could get someone popular. Hey, let's get Dwight Fry. He, maybe he's probably up for it, I guess. And they did. That, yeah, of I course guess. he was. You know, but uh, uh, there's a famous actor, uh, Walter Brennan. He played as one of his very first roles. On, uh, he played the man whose bike was stolen and thrown. Uh, on people. Uh, John Carradine played a villager. He's also in Bride of Frankenstein, uncredited. But he has played a lot of horror and science fiction roles over the over the years, mostly scary stuff. He played Dracula in House of Frankenstein and House of Dracula. And he was the first Hollywood actor to succeed Bela Lugosi in playing the Count. Uh, I don't think he'll ever be as good as, uh, to be honest, is Bela Lugosi, because Bela Lugosi is Dracula in my heart. Uh, so he'll never be replaced, as far as that's concerned. Uh, the, the whole thing about the Invisible Man has been uh, homaged. Uh, it's been, uh, the idea of that has been copied uh, over It's a good idea, Dozens. Though. It is. And, dozens and, but, of times. But it is a very great idea, though. It's just, in the whole, you know, source of it, it's just a really, really good idea, and you can get all sorts of, you know, stuff from it. And from what I think of this movie, it kind of feels a little bit like, you know, James Whale did Frankenstein, kind of. It kind of seems a bit on the Frankenstein kind of lot. It sort of ends the same way as well, you know, with something being burned down and a character dying later. Right. And um, the Invisible Man also does seem a bit more like Dr. Frankenstein, but... Um, Doctor Frankenstein is a bit less murderous. Obviously. Well, if you if you if you think about it, if you think about it, the murderousness of Frankenstein's creature or the monster, whatever you want to call him, uh, and uh, Doctor Victor Frankenstein kind of smooshed together. He is the uh, he is the object of his experimentation, and it also does have a dame who is seeking love from a devoted and therefore distracted scientist. And she's and she's blonde. And she's blonde-ish, yeah, so <laughs> that also applies as well. And just overall, the book is better because, you know, they flesh out uh, the humanity of Griffin. You know, his reasons, his motives, and, you know, more importantly, how the circumstances changed him. And realistically as well. Um, instead, the movie simplifies his character and therefore his character arc, and uh, also adds, you know, obviously manic comedy to him where there there was none. Um, his character in this movie is a bit more hollow and more counted toward, you know, being a universal monster. But he's a lot more in the book. He's much more complex of a character, you know. Instead of, you know, being like, I'll show you who I am, he's like, you, here you go, I'm invisible, whoop-de-doo, this is my circumstance, and um, he does go a little bit insane, but he, he, doesn't, he doesn't derail a train, 
<laughs> if you get what I mean. Right. And he doesn't really laugh too much. I mean, he does get a little prankster fun uh, in the book, but he's just so much more. His circumstances are what changes him to be, you know, murderous. And, you know, wanting a reign of terror, as well as, you know, maybe influence of, you know, the drugs he puts in his body and the, you know, the potions. But he just, the circumstances is what changes him to be a bit more, you know, murderous of a character as compared to, you know, the simplified version we get in this one. The book is better in this regard. How would you compare Dr. Jekyll to Dr. Griffin? Um, Because Dr. Jekyll, as Mr. Hyde is almost he's free he can be he can free to be as brutal and savage and as sinful as he can be oh my goodness we're getting into such a character study here that's really good really interesting but dr griffin it's it's almost as if uh no one can see me it's like you know but god can see you but if no one can see me then i am god yeah i am the uh, i am the unseen thing that creeps because no one can see god either Right, God's God's unseen, uh, and therefore, you know, el- there's this whole like, element. No, no one cares yeah. whatever you're doing because you could go and ap- do absolutely anything, and if people don't notice you, um, then you're good. You could even, you know, walk around um, naked because in order to actually be invisible, you'd have to do so, but no one would care um, because obviously you're invisible. So you just get the freedom to do whatever you want and you therefore become a god. The Plato's Republic idea. Yes, yes, but there are downsides scientifically, like you have to wait uh, a couple hours after eating uh, before you can go out or, or else everybody's going to see this floating uh, glop or whatever. Um, there's actually uh, a movie called The Memoirs of an Invisible Man uh, that's more of a modern uh, take on it that special effects are more modern and he gets basically he gets his uh, his atomic structure shifted in phase so it's out of phase with with reality they would also do this in star trek i think they would yes was it's, that uh, the original series or next generation next generation next generation yeah but yeah they did that that was that's that was awesome idea. they would but in in memoirs of invisible man he he eats chinese food and he looks into the mirror and sees himself digesting the Chinese food, and it, it makes him throw up. And you see him throw up in the mirror. You know, it, it comes out. It's really weird. Um, that whole movie is weird. And especially, again, we'd also get more modern takes on this. Obviously, you know, Harry Potter uh, with the invisibility, invisibility cloak, cloak also yeah. does a little bit of that. Especially in uh, The Chamber of Secrets, I think, he plays with that a little bit. Or that was Prisoner of Azkaban, I think. he, uh, You know, he smuggles himself into Hogsmeade, I think, in the the third movie. And, you know, he steals a lollipop, but he also uh, he also gets some news by infiltrating into the um, the the teacher's lounge kind yes. of place, I guess. But we won't spoil that for you. Go read Harry Potter. It's really good. So this movie was, uh, I think, very influential as far as special effects and story. Plus, we got introduced to to the uh, the greatness that is Claude Rains. Uh, this is a very memorable movie for me, uh, and I, I would, it was also a very memorable movie and book for me as well. Yes, it's just really great. It's really great. Yeah, and and honestly, there's a lot more uh, movies I, I think uh, that are based off of books that we're going to be doing going forward. We will talk about some of the differences between the books and the movies uh, as we go. Uh, 
uh, of course, to quote to quote my wife, uh, we will say this, even though we we are talking about movies. My wife would say that the book is always better than the movie, and yeah, that's probably true. But we're also going to talk about the movie as an as its own art form, and as with its own limitations as to getting the story across. And we're gonna get we're gonna we're gonna give these things a fair shake. We're gonna look, you know, if we talk about the Lord of the Rings, uh, we're gonna talk about them as movies. How they how they, you know, how they use emotion to pull at your heartstrings. And uh, especially since there's, you know, they do follow the plot, you know, very faithfully. But in the plot section, I will cover some of the book differences. Obviously, being, you know, I, I would want to do that. So, um, just. Uh, before we go into the plot section, I wanted to know, William, what are some memories, uh, not necessarily like, you know, uh, you have to think of the greatest memory ever. What are some memories that you've had um, doing the podcast, uh, some specific episodes that really kind of stood out to you as something either funny or weird that happened? Well, I mean, memory is so weird, especially, you know, being seven months in the making it's my memory is probably going to be really you know difficult to access so i'm probably going to start going backwards i guess king kong was really fun as well especially since i you know got to do the dk rap and we <laughs> also studied a really cool movie um son of kong was actually it, it was pretty fun as well um avid you know viewers would notice that it was released in the same week you know we rushed it out we worked on it on the same time people so <laughs> um just so you know and then uh dr dr jekyll and mr dr. hyde dr jekyll and mr hyde was also pretty fun as well um and that's definitely a pretty good book i'm still in the process of reading it that's just because i stopped reading it so i i liked that we had you know kind of that in-depth we really broke that movie down i mean even the even the religious aspects and the connections uh and and just we went really deep on you know the nature of of evil and and sin and, 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 sin and, and retribution and punishment and god and it was deep i also i also i liked uh well, we did the monster walks in the old dark house because Me not too. only did we get to see a really good movie uh, example of a, of, a, of a dark house kind of movie, we got to see one that was like a stinker. And the vampire bat was pretty good too. As yeah, well. it, it was. I liked I liked talking about uh, Dwight Fry's character, and and I really I really feel bad for him in that because he was not he's not he's not like he's Renfield where he's he's maybe killing maybe. Uh, or or anything like that. He just there's a lot of depth to it, even though he dies very quickly. So and then the next notable ones I really like was obviously you know the most dangerous game. That was oh that pretty was fun as well. We also had some fun with the uh, Huma Huma Nuku Nuku applause. Yes, we did. Um, or that was the Island of Lost Souls. Yeah, yeah, the Island of Lost Souls. I really liked talking about. Um, you know some of those aspects of of what what's a what's a beast and what's a man. Um, I liked. There's different elements. Like I liked that we that you called him a legendary uh, in White Zombie. Um, I liked there. I liked there's so much to like in 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 where we went. The Mummy was a really good episode as well. We had a lot of fun with that. Um, Frankenstein obviously was pretty good. I think I had a bit more fun with Dracula though. 
Yeah, and and I liked uh, I liked when we had our guest on uh, that my daughter Leia on the Phantom of the Opera. That was really nice hearing from her. The Lost World was pretty cool. Oh as well. yeah, we got to talk I was about stop motion for the first time. For the first time, Nosferatu was. Oh, I Dad has this episode in his heart as his favorite. It's kind. Of, I have a well, okay. It's a good place in my heart. There's a part where I I was reading. Uh, out of the script from uh, for the movie when uh, when Hutter is reading out of the book about vampires and you played this really creepy mu- music behind when I was talking on the podcast I thought that was hilarious to me and um, the Dergolum and Cabinet Doctor Caligari while a little bit you know forgettable I guess in terms of you know many of the other ones. Um, those were still great as well. They have a little bit stuff to them. I still remember scenes from those movies in my brain. And I would gladly go rewatch them. In fact, I rewatched uh, The Lost World for the Son of Kong episode to kind of compare them a little bit. And we, you learned a lot about German expressionism, though, too, which, you know, you probably didn't, didn't know a lot. You may have I known. I didn't even know it existed. Yeah, yeah. So, and then, last of all, not in our hearts, but... You know, our first episode. We had a lot of fun with that. I was new to podcasting, so, you know, they goofed around a little bit. Um, We were trying to test stuff out. Um, But, yeah, that was our first episode. And now we have just developed so much until then, and our content has gotten better. We've definitely got a style down. Even though... There may not be so many people out there, you know, listening to us. We don't have thousands yet. But... I just feel like we make good content, not because of the people outside, but because, you know, we like the content. We like making good content and, you know, listening back on it and going, oh, I really enjoyed making this episode and, you know, me editing this episode and, you know, creating this wonderful podcast episode. And that's why we are doing this podcast. Yeah, we're doing it for the love of it. You know, it's it's great to have an audience that responds well. And we do have some some dedicated fans uh, and, we, and they're. And I mean that they're very they're very vocal about telling us what they like and what they don't and what they how they felt when they watched it and or listened to it and that's what I like to hear. But honestly, uh, I think the re- main reason why I started this, William, is to have something you and I could share together. I love film, and I love film from its inception, even from the oldest to the newest. And I think I would say uh, two years ago, if I had said. Hey, do you want to watch this older movie? You probably, uh, I'm probably thinking, I don't, I don't want to say this, but you might have turned your nose up at it and been like, oh. I had only watched, you know, The Invisible Man, Frankenstein, and Dracula, so, really, so, but none of the others, so I wouldn't really, you know, enjoy seeing old movies like this. I mean, you know, for film fanatics, um, you can just, there's so much to appreciate, just, if you really like film... Um, don't, you know, keep yourself to just watching, you know, the latest stuff. There's a whole century of stuff that you can watch and appreciate and analyze. And um, for, you know, filmophiles, you can go all the way back to, you know, some goodies from 1920. Um, 
if you wouldn't, you know, revisit stuff, you could watch silent movies, you know, if you prefer sound movies, you know, try that out, it's pretty cool, um, maybe, maybe there's a particular era you don't really know about, maybe you don't know what RKO was like in the 40s, for instance, you could go and watch some stuff from that, analyze it, and go, wow, that's amazing, but, uh, yeah, we've been going on for a while, and, um, you'll tune in in about, I don't know, 15 seconds, however long our break music is, right. for a plot of the Invisible Man that yep. will appear before your eyes. A detailed breakdown uh, of the plot of Invisible Man. Also, uh, William's going to talk about some of the similarities in the book and the differences in the book. And we could, we could talk about how some of those scenes were portrayed in the movie and how they uh, how they made us feel. So we're going to show you who we are and what we are. We are Cinematic Fantastic. We're going to go on break. We'll be back in just a moment with some more fun and frivolity. Until then, see ya. Welcome back, listeners. Welcome back to the other half. The final half of Cinematic Fantastic. It's the final half of the finale. Uh, so if this if this wasn't the the end, my friends, uh, I don't know what is. No, but it's just it's just the finale. And what it means is we have come to a milestone. Remember what they said in the Monster Walks about ages and milestone? Oh, oh no. <laughs> He said millstone. Age is a millstone. <laughs> yeah. It's, it's a milestone. See, the d- director didn't even stop him and go, it's a milestone, not a millstone. They were pumping B-movies out like crazy. but That was Poverty Road. That was Poverty Road. This is not a B-movie. This is a very or influential. Or is it? No one knows. Invisible Man is a very influential movie. Many directors of both science fiction, science fiction, uh, thrillers, and horror they all look back to this as very influential on their career. And this, just this tale, this, you know, book and movie as together, just, I read this book in my childhood, absolutely loved it. War of the Worlds, read it in my childhood, absolutely loved it. You know, another thing, uh, some other books as well as I read on a, uh, while I'm going at it, I'll I'll give you my childhood science fiction novels. Um, another thing is I read a couple of the William Sleater books. Um, oh yeah, I mean they're not as you know philosophical as H.G. Wells, but they're science fiction. Did you read Intergalactic Pig or what's what's Interstellar it called? Interstellar Pig was a really good favorite of mine. It's for those who don't know, basically. Um, well, I, I, I hold it in my heart as the same as Invisible Man a little bit, but it is pretty high praise for a book that isn't so much high praise. I just, in terms of childhood books, those two were the top two that I went to. So the Interstellar Pig is about, you know, this teenager, he goes, uh, moves to somewhere, and, um, there are odd neighbors who happen to have a board game they like. It's called Jumanji. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> no, it's called Interstellar Pig. Interstellar Pig, that was what it's called, yeah. And as we will discover later in the book, um, the board game is actually real. So at the final part of the book, they have to, you know, deal with the odd neighbors that are actually players of Interstellar Pig. 
and they, you know, go on sort of like a manhunt, this teenager surviving for his life against, you know, all the competitors playing this, you know, game and um, dealing with the cards that they have. Um, another one of them that I also pretty liked was uh, the boy who reversed himself. Oh, which yeah. Which was basically a, you know, a girl... Um, she goes to school with this boy. This boy happens to have reversed himself completely, and then he pulls her into, you know, this revelation and, you know, of, you know, traveling in this, like, fourth dimension. Really kooky idea. The Green Futures of Tycho? The Green Futures of Tycho, yes, was another pretty good one. Yeah. That one was about time travel, I think. Uh, yeah, and I think it was also, to me, it was also about... You know the the relationships with with siblings and uh, that we that we have. Basically, Dad was the one who fed me all these books from his childhood, and he liked them, and therefore I liked them. So well, you liked them as a choice. I see. The thing is, with these movies that we're sh- that I'm showing you and these uh, books. They're not. I don't want you to like like them because I like them. I like them because I They're like good. them. They're good. Yeah. They're good as well. And um, you know, Interstellar Pig is a good read. Um, if you feel like reading it. Did you do Singularity? Um, I did much later. I I think I read that one like a couple years ago. I think Singularity was about the two brothers that were twins. Yeah, like the aging. Yeah, he always wanted to be better than the other brother. So he stayed in this cabin that was frozen in time so that he can age himself up. It's a pretty creepy novel. It was kind of strange. William Sleater, he has some of the pretty coolest um, ideas. So if you're looking for a science fiction author that's, you know, got some out-of-this-world ideas, William Sleater is pretty good. He's a little bit, you know, there's some things like, oh, aliens ate my homework or something, or aliens in the attic. No, 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 this this guy, he doesn't write down to kids. He doesn't write down to people with a brain. He writes science fiction that, that children and young people can uh, deal with, but it doesn't talk down to them it doesn't go like hey you're dumb so you're you're just you don't understand deeper concepts so i'm so just from gonna go childhood yeah. and you know just overall recommendation uh william sleater check him out he's got some good stuff this has been the william sleater corner uh of the podcast we're thinking of doing a spinoff called uh interstellar pod uh no i'm kidding uh the, po- <laughs> the pod the podcast that reversed itself we could do that. The green futures of podcast. The 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 yeah the 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 green futures of Tyco Pod. I don't know. Tie of Tide Pod. Don't yeah. eat those kids. <laughs> no. no, I'm just I'm kidding. No, but we can as we go. We are gonna t- uh, to also delve into literature because many of the movies that uh, that we're watching have been inspired by books. Uh, by novels and things like that. And so, I'm just giving you, you know, my science fiction grounding as a child. Um, you know, just for funsies, you know. I enjoyed these books. You should, you should enjoy them too. They're pretty good. So, as I promised um, in the last segment, I also, there are some differences from the book. There aren't too many, though. Overall, it's just simplification. Is what they did. Do you think it's pretty faithful? Would you say? Would you I feel say? like all the events are there. 
you know, maybe they change it around a little bit of things and they overall simplify it into a one hour format as compared to, you know, a full novel. But yeah, I feel like it is pretty faithful. There are some things that are not faithful. Um, obviously, we are, as this is the plot segment, we are spoiling The Invisible Man, the movie. If you want to watch it clean without spoilers, then heads up. We we never give these, though, because we just assume that if we're going to do a plot, then we're going to spoil it. So I think, I think on Amazon, there is actually the, there's an um, Invisible Man collection, which... Uh, has the original Invisible Man and then the other movies that are tangentially con- connected uh, by the smallest of threads, except for the word Invisible and, and made by Universal. But you can get all those. We are going to do all those movies on the po- uh, on this podcast. Uh, so if you get that copy of the DVD, you'll be set to watch the ones that we'll be doing probably in uh, the next two seasons, maybe. So if you organize a stakeout and you wait for the long haul. Uh, we'll have the full saga out. It'll be pretty cool. But um, some differences uh, from The Invisible Man by H.G. Wells and The Invisible Man by James Whale. Okay. First of all, uh, one of the first, you know, things that happens in this movie, obviously we get, you know, The Invisible Man in the inn. Um, the book, you know, extends the inn time for, you know, many days. I think even like a month or two. Um, as you know, you go, you get Griffin working on his cure, but it's unsuccessful, and he also runs out of money, um, causing Miss Hall to kick him out because, you know, you don't have the money. Um, that does happen in this film, but they, they do shorten it down to 15 minutes. They compress it, they compress the time. I think they compress it over a day or two. And he doesn't even, like, rob anyone. Which was, you know, the thing that also set off, you know, to kick him out because he's a thief. He's he stole from the reverend, I think. Wow. Yeah, they do simplify it down to within a single day. Ladies and gentlemen, our hero of the tale, he stole from the church. It, <laughs> it was his home. He had a bunch of sovereigns just laying in a in a sock drawer. So that, that's if you don't want the invisible man to come and steal your sovereigns, don't put it <laughs> in a sock drawer. Put it in the church. Um, you know, tithe tithe it all. Amen. Praise a- the Lord. <laughs> amen. Praise the Lord. So the movie does, you know, have him just, you know, making a mess, and that is what kicks him out. As a I big will stop thing. you for one moment. He did steal money from the bank and threw it all over the ground. Much later in this movie. Did he make all the people that were walking by the real thieves because they didn't pick the money up and go, hey, let's take it back to the bank, which is, you know, 10 feet over that way. They went, oh, I'm rich. I'm bloody rich. And they just went, you know, run off with it. It's free money. Uh, it's, you know, I will tell you, you know, the many, well, if this was done modern in a modern way, Bank bills many times can be marked so that if you steal the money from the bank, you know, they will know it. They can say any money that went out at this time that got that was is considered stolen. So another thing that this movie changes is that 
Mrs. Hall was not as annoying in the book as she is in this movie. She is just so annoying. I think I think it's Una for o the greater good that the book was much better and Mrs. Hall was much more nicer. Una O'Connor, she does play that up kind of uh, in in the, the annoying voice that she. she I, I noticed she wasn't very annoying until her husband caught a wallop on the head, and then then she's like screaming like that. Just any time she thinks about, you know, his husband's injury, she just She overacts. Wails. And she did it. She did it. Uh, I think she does something similarly annoying in Bride of Frankenstein, uh, which we will see uh, next season, I believe. But she's not annoying in any other role I've seen her in. Um, I don't think she does any wailing or anything annoying in The Adventures of Robin Hood, but I haven't seen that for many, many years. Uh, by the way... If you want one of the greatest sword fights in cinematic history, we're going to see that in that movie. So, you know, keep with us and we will. Well, we'll also do Princess Bride years later. And that some people say that's one of the best. But I'm telling you, that one's a really great sword fight. But this one leaves it in the dust. So another thing is that um, they get rid of the character for simplification purposes of uh, Thomas Marvel. So Thomas Marvel, in the book, he's kind of like a tramp, and he's the one who helps the Invisible Man to get his books back. Um, he does betray him later, though, and um, the Invisible Man does not like that and wants to get his revenge and, you know, murder him, addendum mortis. But in this movie... They just simplified to Kemp. I mean, Kemp would help later in the novel. He would be a later introduction in the novel, but in the film, he is the helper throughout all of it. They kind of combine some of the things that Marvel does with Kemp. And um, another thing is that they give him the first name Jack. This is not just the movie. I think they also did this in, you know, the great illustrated classics version. It's there. I think it's like, you know, they added it after it was released to go, you know, the name that he had in the original novel, he just was Griffin, uh, Mr. Griffin. And um, it's more mysterious and more impersonal, you know, and instead they add the name Jack, it makes it less so and a bit more generic, obviously, since Jack. In the comic book series, which, of course, is it's very literary, but also a pretty mature, buddy. Uh, the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen? League of Extraordinary Gentlemen. He's called Holly Griffin, H-A-W-L-E-Y. But in the movie, they didn't have the rights to be able to do it in the movie version of the League of Extraordinary Gentlemen, which they have this thief guy named Rodney Skinner who steals the formula and starts using it to be a thief with it. He actually has a, a lot nicer personality than Griffin appeared to do in the book or the movie. It, it works. But the name Jack doesn't really get used too much. I mean, we get Flora uh, referred to him by Jack, obviously, because, you know, uh, she loves him and calls him Jack. But otherwise, everyone calls him just Griffin. Speak, speaking of Flora, is there a Flora Cranley in the book? No, there's not. Neither is there a Dr. Cranley. The Dr. Cranley, her father, either. None of those really existed. They, I guess, needed um, a love interest for this type of movie. What are what are some other movies that we have done that have been based off of books that appeared to add in a love interest? There was a love interest of Victor Frankenstein. The Most Dangerous Game is one of them. Wait, wait, wait. There wasn't a woman in The Most Dangerous Game? No, there was not in okay. The Most Dangerous Game. That's a shame because Faye Ray was awesome in that. Yes. And so was the episode. So, uh, go ahead. Another thing is obviously the ending 
or at least uh, a section of the ending, as the ending is entirely different in the the book. Whereas in the book, um, we had um, Kemp, he's being chased by the Invisible Man. It's very climactic, and he's yelling for the police, yelling for the police. And then they manage to catch him, and then I think they all, like you know, kick him and strangle him under a crowd, and that's the way he goes. Um, but in this movie, um, Kemp actually does not live. He he dies by a car, you know, crashing down in the final moments of the movie, and obviously, you know, um, they skirt him out of a barn as well. Um, I think that was also a bit of that in the book, but Kemp stayed alive to the very end in the the book, but not in the movie though. Yeah, of course, of course. When you go over the plot, you know, uh, event by event, we'll go into that more. Which um, I'm doing right now. All right. So the plot. Um, first thing is we get you know this animated um, kind of thing. I think it's like swirling in the snow a little bit, but not like the letters. But, like, I don't know, they're they're moving around, doing what they do, it's pretty cool. Um, the NRA also has a plaque on this movie for no justified reason. Um, as we saw in Son of Kong, the that's where we first saw it, and we also see it in this movie as well. There's not very much reason for it, but, hey, they wanted their name out there. Yeah, I think they, I think that, that, you know, they were, it's very early on in the NRA, and, and honestly, they probably did not have a huge... Uh, lobbying pull in the government like they do now. So they were probably just, you know, for, for gun rights and gun safety. Uh, they, there wasn't a huge amount of money behind them, you know, uh, and all that like there is now. There's just, they were just an organization, you know, probably bare bones. So first of all, we get a wintry night when I'm going to differentiate the two characters um, from the movie and the book because I feel like they'd simplify him into, you know, a universal monster kind of format. He's kind of more murdery and kind of more prankstery, and he laughs at things. So I'm going to call him Jack instead of, you know, Griffin or Mr. Griffin, just to differentiate, you know, the book version from the movie version, because I feel like they're different in many ways, making the book much better than the movie. All right, got that? So, so Jack... He arrives to the Lion's Head Inn in um, the village of Iping, which is in West Sussex. I think the the inn in the book is called the Coach and Horses Inn, if I can recall correctly. But it's its first name is, which we'll get to that later. Yeah. So he's getting really cold outside, and um, so he goes in and he's like, "I want a room and a fire." Um, and these lines are obviously from the book. They're very famous lines. You know, his first lines are, I need a room and a fire. And, um, also he wants to be left alone in his room. Um, he won't allow people in there. He just wants to exist by himself. Um, Mrs. Hall arrives with his, you know, his luncheon. And, um, unfortunately she forgets the mustard. Um, so she goes back up and delivers the mustard. Thing is, Jack wanted left alone so that he can eat without being discovered as invisible. She saw him with his bandage, uh, removed off of the uh, upper and lower part of his mouth. And so it looked like he had this big, this big gaping. His big gaping hole, but then he hit it and he was like, I told you to leave me alone. And she does take his hat and his coat, but then he says, you know, leave the hat. So that's what she does. Um, later in the day, we get him experimenting, trying to, you know, discover the cure. 
he, he doesn't really accomplish that. So, you know, he just ruins the carpet in a fit of rage, you know, spilling all of his cure um, that wasn't successful. Um, Mrs. Hall doesn't like that, as well as the fact that, you know, he didn't pay his rent too much. So she goes and tells Mrs. Hall, you go up there and you a victim. Oh, Mr. Hall. Mr. Hall. Right. So Mr. Hall goes up and he's like, I'm going to evict you and there's nothing you can do. Jack at first is, you know, pleading with him. He, he's, he's explaining he's had, a, you know, a terrible accident, you know, disfiguring his face and um, his eyes as well. But since Mr. Hall won't give, he just chucks him down the stairs. And obviously this wasn't really done in the book. I guess he just, you know, shoves him out of the room, but not like um, down the stairs, I don't think. Um, Mrs. Hall, again, she's weeping over her husband's head, um, which has been damaged. The townspeople get a police officer to arrest Jack for this heinous crime. Um, but Jack, laughing maniacally, um, takes off the bandages and goggles of his face and shows him who he is and what he is. <laughs> All right, you fools. You've brought it on yourselves. Everything would have come right if you'd only left me alone. You've driven me near madness with your peering through the keyholes and dipping through the curtains. And now you'll suffer for it. You're crazy to know who I am, aren't you? All right, I'll show you. I'll show you who I am and what I am. <laughs> so the people now know he's actually invisible. He then sheds his clothes, making himself completely indistinguishable from oxygen. Yeah, and and, and this is the, a very famous scene, everyone. So when everybody watches this movie, this is probably the scene that they remember more than any other that just really sticks with you. It really does. It's the first time you really see the effect, and you're like, you know, even for something done in 1933, it's not bad. It's not, you know, 2022's effects, but it's pretty good. Yeah, so... He snaps the policeman's neck. Um, he goes about, you know, pranking people, you know, t- spilling over a baby carriage, stealing a bicycle, throwing a man's hat off of his head, and he vanishes into the countryside. Not that he wasn't already vanished um, <laughs> at all. He stole the bicycle from uh, a character who was played by Walter Brennan, who became, like I said previously, became a much bigger star after this movie. Yes, so then we get introduced to a Flora Cranley, and we also get introduced to Dr. Kemp and his assistant, Dr. Cranley, the father of Flora Cranley. Um, Flora is very distraught by her love's disappearance. He meddled in things men should leave alone. What do you mean? He worked in secret. He kept a lot of stuff locked in a big cupboard in his laboratory. He never opened that cupboard until he barred the door and drawn them blinds. Straightforward scientists have no need for barred doors and drawn blinds. He cares nothing for you, Flora. He'll never care about anything but test tubes and chemicals. Cranley has also found a list of chemicals in Jack's lab. One of the ingredients is monocaine, which is an extremely dangerous drug previously used for bleaching. It was uh, originally found in India. It grows in India. One time a dog ingested it, and it turned pure white and raving mad. Um, the book had a similar thing where it had a cat being experimented on, you know, he poured the drug into cat food, it ate it, um, it was like a homeless cat, and it turned invisible, except for its irises, obviously, but 
it disappeared into the night. Oh, that was in the book. That was the book, but the movie has a uh, monocane, um, which uh, obviously does not exist in in the book. Um, instead, he just goes mad by circumstance and not a, a drug um, that turned him invisible. But Jack, he didn't know it was dangerous and maddening. All he knew was it, you know, bleached you. So I could probably use this in my drug, he said. And he turned himself invisible with it. So, um, the next evening, the day of his escape, we have Dr. Kemp. He's chillaxing at home. Uh, the radio then decides to talk about the Invisible Man just for him to turn it off right in front of him. The Invisible Man is here, and he's forcing Kemp to become his partner so he can take over the world in a reign of terror. One day I'll tell you everything. There's no time now. I began five years ago, in secret, working all night, every night, right into the dawn. A thousand experiments, a thousand failures, and then... At last, the great, wonderful day. Suddenly, I realized the power I held. The power to rule, to make the world grovel at my feet. We'll begin with the reign of terror. A few murders here and there. Murders of great men, murders of little men. Just to show we make no distinction. We might even break a train or two. Just these fingers round a signalman's throat. That's all. Um, but he left his, uh, two, not three like in the book, uh, notebooks at the inn. Jack is really bossy. He is. He's like, get me, get me some, you know, get me a this, get me a that. He's trying to make sure that no one betrays him, um, to the police, and he doesn't want to be caught. If you raise a finger against me, you're a dead man. I'm strong, and I'll strangle you. And if you try and escape by the window, I shall follow you. And no one in the world can save you. So this kind of reflects a little bit of the book character. So basically he goes out, they go out in a car, so he infiltrates the inn. Uh, Kemp is outside to watch. Um, inside, the police are investigating. They're asking around, going like, okay, so what actually happened here? Um, the main man, he's thinking it's a hoax, um, but he's obviously not. Um, but with the books given to Kemp... Uh, the Invisible Man then decides to, to show himself present and addendum mortis uh, that officer. He it, it just had to be done. It just had to be done. So this makes the news. And um, the Invisible Man then goes to Kemp and he says, you know... The food is visible inside me until it is digested. I can only work on fine, clear days. If I work in the rain, the water can be seen on my head and shoulders. In a fog, you can see me, like a bubble. In smoky cities, the soot settles on me until you can see a dark outline. You must always be near at hand to wipe off my feet. Even dirt between my fingernails would give me away. But these are trivial difficulties. We shall find ways of defeating everything. So, some of that stuff that he talks about, where he talks about soot or snow or rain... Uh, I remember in the book he was saying, you know, if I get rain on me, I'll look like a bubble, like a just a bubble moving through the rain. Yeah. Part I think he's a part where he's talking to Marvel, Thomas Marvel about that. Yeah. And that's where they're kind of pulling some of that that dialogue. So, um the police are then starting a search in a 20-mile radius in a cool montage-style bit showing them searching by foot, car, and motorcycle. I thought this was pretty neat. Um, the whole village is on lockdown. The Invisible Man is at large. 
What's funny is they mix in the Invisible Man sleeping peacefully in the midst of the panic and and the word of his danger. Keep him out. Hey, up the door. Take no chances. We'll be right right the I'll keep him out. While the Invisible Man is asleep, um, Kemp calls Cranley and the police to come to his house um, in secret because Jack is indeed there. But Flora, she persuades her father to let her come along with Dr. Cranley because, um, you know, they know it's Griffin. Um, she wants to see him again. While we do see men phoning in to give good ideas for capturing him, and from this we also know that there is a bounty as well on the Invisible Man. And then we also get that the police station, there's only five there when uh, Dr. Kemp calls, so they'll have to wait for more men. Um, so that's a bit of a delay. So at first, you know, Jack is sus of him uh, when he wakes due to the sound of Dr. Kemp's voice whispering into the phone. He's like, well, are, are you going to betray me? And then he goes, no, I was just calling, you know, Flora over to, to see you. I was afraid. Wouldn't you be afraid if I were invisible like you? There's no need to be afraid, Kemp. We are partners, bosom friends. He lets them off because of that. Flora then arrives to speak with him, you know, pleading in vain for him to stop his reign of terror plan and to cure him of the invisibility. I wanted to do something tremendous, to achieve what men of science have dreamt of since the world began, to gain wealth and fame and honor, to write my name above the greatest scientists of all time. I was just a poor, struggling chemist. I shall come back to you, Flora, very soon now. There is a way back, Flora. And then I shall come to you. I shall offer my secret to the world with all its terrible power. The nations of the world will bid for it thousands, millions. The nation that wins my secret can sweep the world with invisible armies. Your father, clever? <laughs> you think he can help me? He's got the brain of a tapeworm, a maggot beside mine. Don't you see what it means? Power, power to rule, to make the world grovel at my feet. Power to walk into the gold vaults of the nations, into the secrets of kings, into the holy of holies. Power to make multitudes run squealing in terror at the touch of my little invisible finger. Even the moon's frightened of me. But then the police are closing in onto the house. And then Jack, you know, he realizes, oh, I actually was betrayed. Hold on, uh, get you to safety before I go out and deal with these bozos. And, um, he also tells Kemp, I've no time now, but believe me, as surely as the moon will set and the sun will rise, I shall kill you tomorrow night. I shall kill you even if you hide in the deepest cave of the earth. At ten o'clock tomorrow night, I shall kill you. Um, it's a pretty good line. Before escaping the police, um, they're closing in, they have, like, a wall strategy by pranking him in various ways, you know, squishing nose, you know, kicking his rear and um picking him up by the the pants and you know swinging him around um there's a lot of fun there and he, he just goes off on a spree just absolutely you know addendum mortising the volunteer workers you know trying to search for him and he also derails a train um by changing the track which is obviously a fault of the engineers concerning that it's a bridge there's literally no place that you can physically turn why would you put a turn there it's the engineer's fault 
But yeah, he he flips the lever and the the track goes to the left. The train goes off the bridge and it kills hundreds of people. And I don't even know why. It's just it's just it's just he wants. He's going on a reign of terror. Now in the book, he says he's you know he says Invisible Man the first, as if that's like almost like an an emperor's. He title. does give you know in the book he gives decrees, but he doesn't derail a train. Does he? Okay, what is what is the worst? like hu- humanly possible thing that he does in the book as opposed to the movie. Um well murder, but but you you have to say probably murder of a child or murder of, you know, a mass murder like many many people. He doesn't really do that. I mean, he's gone after, you know, previous people. He's overall just, you know, getting revenge on the the village overall in this uh movie. So They was for it the country bumpkins. That that's his overall plan, uh, as well as in the book. But he's had his overall plan is to to get revenge on this village and you know to to make the news of the Invisible Man um, not escape. Uh, but overall, yeah, in the book he wants to be a king um, over this village or like I think it was like a bigger town, like Burbank. I think he wanted to be king of Burbank and um, to rule over it as the Invisible Man the first, as you said. But yeah, in this movie, he he derails a train, he chucks two citizens off a cliff, he steals money from the bank and chucks it onto the pavement. A present from the Invisible Man! Money! 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 (laughs) 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 Up and down the city road, in and out the eagle, that's the way the money goes, up goes the weasel! Money! 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 And it is just chaos. But, however, the police have a plan to capture him, um, or are getting that together. This also is the small little scene where we get Dwight Fry, the reporter, um, inquiring for the paper, as, uh, Flora is also worrying about Jack. The police is making use of walls of men and, uh, dust on the rooftops to try and locate, uh, the Invisible Man. What about those, what about those hoses? They have hoses with, like, an ink? They did have, they had ink hoses, pointed like toward the top of the wall with all the policemen just pointing it at them and there's like a false alarm decoy with a uh with with a cat um that steps on the rooftops and it 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 disturbs the dust and then the guy he just goes hey the invisible mass here (laughs) i'm trying my best okay i know i know You're, you're trying you can teach me how to do it a bit better later but yeah the cat gets squirted with an ink gun and Kemp is being escorted in a cube of men uh, to his house so he can drive away in his car to, you know, who knows where, but just anywhere. I, I feel like, overall, there is a lot of complexity to the story in terms of, you know, they, of course, there's like a montage of, you know, showing them a, a wide-scale 20-mile search for the Invisible Man and, you know, all the news that he's at large, the radio... It just feels like this huge event, and the police are, you know, they're trying to deal with this uh, invisible man. Thing is, they're not really competent police at all, in my opinion. Not really, yeah. Oh, I see. Pretty good. But overall, you can just feel that there's a lot of complexity. You know, they show the police doing their thing. Uh, They also show Flora, you know, worrying about uh, Jack and where he's at. You have the invisible man doing stuff. And, you know, Kemp is also, you know, worried as well. You get a ton of different complexities to this story, and I feel like we haven't really had that complexity 
um, overall to the story um, in any of the other movies really did. This shows, you know, just a ton of different events overall happening. You know, they're trying to capture the Invisible Man. You can see the scale of it. And I think that's uh, a really neat thing about this movie. Well, I, th- I think what it, what they're looking into is, is you you can't see the threat. But what they can do is, you know, at least think. They're thinking. They're they're like, okay, if we surround Kemp and walk this way, uh, he can't see us. And then if they mess with him, yeah, you'll know. Um, the police aren't too competent at this. I mean, it's the vill. It's a village, okay? It's a village. They're not bound to have too good of police, but they do eventually catch him later. They're competent enough to, you know, um, protect their town the best they can. Um, against I think uh, I think what what really sets them apart is they do have the help of the people in the town. Um, that's you know at least toward the end of the movie they they have, you know they can only do so much as as you know as a police force. But when they get the people together with them, but it does kind of feel like uh, the end of Frankenstein. You've it got does. people with metaphorical torches and they're they're coming after somebody in who was holed up in a house and then fire. Yeah, and then fire. And James Whale knows all about all those things. Concerning he directed that movie. Yeah, con- yes he did. So He created that movie. So um so Kemp has managed to escape in a police costume um over to you know his car. He's getting it out of his garage and he's driving along the road away. It seems that he has victory. Thing is, the invisible man was hiding in the back seat having tailed him all day. Oh no, what is he to do? So the Invisible Man, he just overpowers him, he ties him up, and he sends the car down with Kemp in it, down a steep hill, over a cliff in a massive fire, with no chance of Kemp surviving. I feel like the model work was pretty cool. I mean, they they kind of did add the fire a bit too early, so it's like any collision, just fire, and you definitely know that there's a problem. But they also used the model work a bit for the train as well, which I think is pretty cool. Yeah, the mo- the model work is not is not the greatest I've ever seen. I think that the larger you make the model, it's where it's not quite the size of what you would expect. But it it seems realistic enough, though, that you have like a train falling over. I mean, it's not like you know toy physics or no, anything. But we're, we're gonna see we're gonna see a lot of of model work going forward so, and some of it's really great some of it's okay and some of it's terrible but i feel like this one was pretty good it's pretty it's not believable bad. it's not bad it's not too bad um so camp is dead as compared to the book he's obviously not this is the you know final part of the movie we've got a snowstorm and um jack has to seek shelter otherwise you know they can catch him with his footprints they can catch him, you know, the snow resting on his body and the frost, you know, turning him into a visible bubble. One of the guys actually says he sees that the snow is starting to fall and he's like, oh, this is perfect. And they also there's also a little bit in this movie where he's running along in the snow and there are some boys that chase his footprints, at least in the book. But it's also here in the movie as well, as far as I can tell. So he's gone to this random barn um, and he's sleeping in it with the hay. Um, he falls asleep later, however, the farmer, he enters his barn, rightfully so, and he spots him moving in the haystack, uh, in his sleep, and he's like, hey, I, I think this is the Invisible Man, and goes to the police, and you know, he says, 
Hey, I've got something to tell you. There's moving in my barn. And that that that's kind of funny. It's like, it's the Invisible Man, see? And so the police now know where he is. They then make a plan to, you know, light the thing on fire. And it'll, you know, chase him out. Um, obviously being that he doesn't want to die. So it'll, it'll make him have to come out. And then they can, you know, shoot him. Which is exactly what happens. They close on the barn in a big epic ring. Then they set fire to the building with some gasoline. Uh, the Invisible Man is forced out, and his footprints are now visible in the snow. The police chief then shoots him, mortally injuring him. And then we get this last final scene of the movie, where Flora is talking to him at his deathbed, and Jack he sadly admits, I meddled in things that man must leave alone, his body becoming visible at his last breath. So, I feel like they're... This this is the end of, you know, this movie, but it also feels like a signing off to this podcast season as well. There are definitely some great things to say about this movie. Obviously, you can get some complexity of action. Obviously, there's an invisible man, so they accomplished that when no one could have dreamed of it coming at the screen in the way that it does before, really, um, unless there were previous adaptations that weren't so popular. Um, in the 1920s or something, I don't know, but there's overall lots to like about the movie. Um, obviously, Claude Rains with his uh, gravelly voice, he does pretty well at the job. They, uh, somebody has actually said that his voice is like uh, graveled honey, or honeyed gravel, and I'm like, that's great. That's pretty great. His acting in this movie... His delivery is very nice. He can definitely deliver all those rageful moments... And he's like, you're lying to me, are you? Well, uh, you're going to die at 10 o'clock. And it's pretty cool. There is one thing I'll mention uh, real quick. Uh, The first time that the Joker is introduced, or one of the first times the Joker is introduced in in the Batman comic book, he tells a judge or or some person uh, of of import to him that he is going to kill him or he's going to die at like midnight on a certain day and everybody is like all surrounding him, you know, going, how is he going to do it? Oh, well, we can't let anything enter this room. No, no envelopes, no nothing. Cause he could put poison on the envelope. There's all this difference. How, how is the Joker going to, going to accomplish this? So it's the Joker was more murderous in the Batman early on. And then he kind of went, became more of a prankster, but I thought it was very interesting. You don't know how he's going to, Uh, Griffin is going to accomplish this. Where is he? You get more of this in the book, which what, that's what makes the book really great. And the movie kind of inherits it a little bit. I've said a little bit of what I thought, but my question is, what did you think of this movie and a ton of its scenes? Well, I I thought that in the book, you get more of his uh, narration of how he created the formula and and how he tested it early on. And I found that fascinating especially especially when he's talking about refraction of the skin and yeah. all those different things in the book but i liked the movie i did find that it was it was an actor's movie there were some action scenes in it but they weren't plentiful the full extent of what you deal with when you deal with an invisible man i've seen some different portrayals of that uh later um you know in other media that were really really good and interesting but I think this one is more of a suspense thriller 
Uh, but it's got those acting moments that those actors can really dig their teeth into. Here we go gathering nuts in May, nuts in May, nuts in May. Here we go gathering nuts in May on a cold and frosty morning. Whoops! It is kind of more the horror side rather than science fiction that we get in the book. But another thing is, you know, Dr. Kemp, he does a pretty good job, but he's not, like, so scared of, like, the Invisible Man. You don't get too much of that. Um, In the terms of using green screen or, like, you know, replacing an actor with another actor, you, you would say that the actor's reacting to X. So in this case, he'd be reacting to the air. So how could you be scared of the air or, like, you know, give a good performance, really? But uh, it's multiple factors, but that's a little bit of it. Um, like, for instance, if you're doing the Sonic the Hedgehog movie, you would have um, the actor for the human looking at, you know, I don't know, some sort of doll or something, or like a a, a big figure made out of. Well, they usually they usually they usually have a stick or something like that with uh, with little little uh, tennis balls on it or some or something like that. So they have eyes that they can look at. That's how they do it. And with that, it's very hard to get, you know, unless you're really, really good at acting, it kind of, you know, the the different scales of, you know, being able to react to this and, you know, have an emotional connection with something like, for instance, you know, Sonic the Hedgehog, um, establishing a relationship with, you know, a character that you haven't seen and will not see until you see the movie. So... So what? now here's the other thing, too. Uh, I just was thinking about how do they react to the air well, just like the character would, because you you don't you look around going, where is his face? Where is his eyes? Is he looking at me? This is really weird. But I mean, we got a lot more, you know. You've got a lot more scaredness when the Invisible Man is present in Kemp's house in the book, especially since you know when he discovers him, he's you know trying to you know yell for the police, and he's like all scared and stuff. And uh, the Invisible Man has to, you know, like, muffle him and keep him still on the bed um, during this first encounter. And overall, when uh, the Invisible Man is, you know, dressing, he, like, just pours it over in his head. He's like, what on earth is happening? And the news is saying all this stuff, man. It's just, how on earth could this be? And you can see the terror. Um, but you get some terror a little bit, especially later in the film with Dr. Kemp. It's Britain, and he's threatening to murder me. He may be here now, beside us, or in the garden, looking through the window, or in the corner of my bedroom, waiting for me, waiting to kill me, and you all sit there doing nothing, nothing! In, uh, this movie, but the, the book, definitely, you can see a bit more of that terror. Um, Dr. Cranley's an actor... And not so much. I don't know if he's such a good actor, but he didn't really do too much action. He does a better. He's not really a big focus of the movie. He he's does not a, too much of a focus. He of does the movie. a better job, I think. When I saw him as Clarence in uh, uh, "It's a Wonderful Life," he did a better job as that. But of course, if you're playing with Jimmy Stewart, Jimmy Stewart. He lifts everyone up around him. He's so good. And if you're playing a side character, you don't need to put too much effort to it. But, you know, as he's explaining monocane and all that stuff, it's kind of a little bit, you know, script-ready, I guess. Maybe maybe this is this is not his wheelhouse. I also, also found Kemp as an actor was okay. And, you know, and honestly... Not to bag on Gloria Stewart, but she she did all right. Gloria Stewart was Gloria Stewart. She did all right, but I really think the standout is absolutely Claude Rains. This is 
this is why we, you know, this was his first role in America, and, and you're like, I can see why this guy was going places. And I can also see why this movie did successfully, because it's just all the factors compounding into this amazing movie, and plus the book as an idea is amazing, so therefore the movie inherits that amazingness. I think so, as long as you're pretty faithful to the book, and I think that it, it was The sequels obviously do diminish, because they're obviously not faithful at all. They literally take nothing. The idea, the only thing they take from it is invisibility and a serum, and that's about it. And basically they took... The they were just using the effect in different other locations. There's even one where the the invisibility formula, the uh, Axis powers, you know, the Nazis and the Japanese, they want the the serum so they can use it during World War Two. There's a little bit of a spy angle to that, but and and then, and then there's other ones where they find a comedic element in it. But honestly, I'm just like, okay, you know, they're okay. They're not they're not highly memorable. Um, I, I honestly, I couldn't remember, barely remember any of the plot of the other, uh, sequels. So honestly, if, you know, I mean, Vincent Price is in one of them and Vincent Price is very memorable and very good at whatever he does. I mean, he's Vincent Price. He does a decent job, whatever is put in front of him. But if we want to bag, if you don't like those movies and you want to bag on them, Let's bag on him. But this movie, despite a little bit of some things that it loses out on, uh, definitely compared to the book, <laughs> it's a pretty great movie. I feel like it's definitely up there with, you know, Frankenstein and stuff. That's why we put it, you know, as our theme song currently, because, you know, that quote is just so good in the movie is so classic. I, I would definitely, you know, when you think of the top universal monsters, you think of uh, you think of the Wolfman, you think of Dracula, Frankenstein, and the Invisible Man, uh, the creature from the Black Lagoon that we'll see later. Those are my core uh, creatures. Um, you know, to be to be honest. But speaking of classics, Dad and I, since this is the final episode, are going to reveal our plans for our bonus features. Um, that we're planning to do in between this season and the next season. It'll be awesome. And um, drum roll, please. Do you want me to do it? You say it, yeah. Okay. Uh, drum roll. I don't want to hit the uh, the mic on this. So like w- William had said earlier in the podcast, we wanted to do uh, – I, I had an idea uh, to do it as, as themes. So we would do a set of four movies – as a theme, and as we go, we're going to hint at some future uh, bonus episodes. Uh, these are ones that, that definitely have a connective tissue to them. Uh, the first one that we'll do is, uh, is William called it Cinematic Classics. I, I was thinking of what could we call it. He said Cinematic Classics. So we're doing Cinematic Classics Month. Be prepared for some, you know, classic movies. Um, and we will also list um, here in no particular order first of all let's say we've got night of the hunter night of the hunter uh is directed by charles lawton who was you know dr moreau and uh it stars robert mitchum one of the uh well very very famous actor from that time it's like a a suspense thriller and it's got some dark elements to it that are very memorable um and i think that this movie uh, as we talked about before in the 
Island uh, of Dr. Island of, Lo- Island Island of Lost, of Lost, Lost Souls. Souls. We talked about this movie when we talked about uh, Charles Lawton. But this movie wasn't uh, very well received at the time. They didn't give it really give it a chance. But as the years have gone by, people have seen it and went, this is really good. So honestly, sometimes art is not always appreciated in the time that it's given. Another one is Fritz Lang's M. We talked about Fritz Lang. He did uh, Metropolis. Uh, this is a German film that is very good and popular among, you know, filmophiles. Enjoy this movie pretty well. It's a very dark movie. It's very, very moody. Very well done. Yeah, it, star- it stars uh, uh, Peter Lorre, very famous uh, for different roles. We will actually see him portray a Japanese character. He's not Japanese. He portrays a Japanese character in The Invisible Agent, but he also portrayed uh, a Japanese character, kind of a, a detective character called Mr. Moto, and that's where they got the idea to, to have him be uh, that. But in this early role, he plays a German man uh, who, who is uh, not uh, up to any good. And the the third one, in no particular order, is um, Treasure of the Sierra Madre. We've been kind of hinting about uh, Humphrey Bogart, and um, there's some good movies in there. In particular, you've got Casablanca. Um, Dad didn't want to do that one, so we're doing Treasure of the Sierra Madre. You will get your Humphrey Bogart, after all. Yes, and it has a very, very famous line in it, and we'll we'll talk about that line later. But The last, but definitely not least, that we're also listing here as for Cinematic Classics Month is Citizen Kane. We've also been talking about this movie a little bit more as we've been going on. Um, but yeah, we've been playing to do Citizen Kane, um, widely considered the best movie um, in existence. It's uh, directed by and stars Orson Welles, who famously is a uh, perfectionist. Every frame on the screen, he planned out meticulously. He he knows what he wants to do. He know he everything. That is everything that graces the screen has a purpose to it. As you know, these different movies ha- each have something interesting to say. They're not necessarily connected thematically. I guess we might be able to find a, th- a through line of theme through these. The through line is that they're cinematic classics. They're really, <laughs> they're really good, and they they are classics of of the of the yesteryear of Hollywood. Some of our other theme thematic months we've talked about are going to be very interesting. Uh, they could, you know, they could have something to do with uh, the far off land of Japan, or they could have something to do uh, with wax on, wax off. Who knows? And we will have even more to come as we, you know, fit them into our idea, our ideas, and pick some movies. But yeah. This has been season one of Cinematic Fantastic. We hope you've enjoyed it. We we we, we really we really. William has worked so hard, uh, uh, he's grown so much as an editor. And especially since, you know, as it's August and it's getting toward, you know, back to school, uh, that's the overall what the month is about, I'll be busy with school until summer. Keep um, expecting us and we we will release episodes all the same. So just be patient with us. Yes, and uh, we uh, we will, William, we will try to announce when we're when the bonus episodes are, are coming out. Um, the, some people uh, go to our blog. Some people go to the Facebook. 
Uh, I think we're going to announce it on the blog and the Facebook when the bonus episodes are coming. So stay tuned for that. Yes, and the season two, we will um, kind of let you know what is going to be coming up in season two, which I'm sure you're going to like. Um, I, I know there's a lot of good stuff in there. Um, now, here's the thing. We're not taking a hiatus in between seasons of like four, five, six, seven months. No. I mean, we're taking some time off because we've really put these episodes out pretty faithfully um, every every week or every week and a half since uh, January, I think. So we're going to take a little bit of time off. Not much, but some. Uh, but do do realize that we are coming back, uh, you know, stronger than ever, uh, and with some really interesting things that you may have never have seen before. Some hidden gems. Maybe there's some that that are your favorite or will become your favorite. Um, I know that I'm certainly looking forward to some of these coming up. Um, and, and it'll be pretty cool. So what a what a journey this has been, William. It's been such a journey. So you know, to cap this off, I'm gonna say uh, this has been Cinematic Fantastic Podcast um, with your hosts Jason Weatherford and William Weatherford. Um, get ready for opinions, dad jokes, and bad jokes as we continue later to watch and review sci-fi and fantasy films from the classics of yesteryear. To the new favorites of today? Yes. Right. Uh, This has been season one. I hope you've enjoyed it. You know, hey, go back and binge all these episodes uh, and it'll remind you of what a journey this has been uh, and where where we've we've come so far. And we have yet still more land to cover in this journey that we're on uh, to the promised land. The promised land. Huge tracts of land to cover. But until then, this has been us. This has been us. Uh, Have a good one, and we will see you soon. Be on the lookout for our bonus episodes. We will announce it, and be patient. Uh, Season 2 will be forthcoming. We will give you announcements when that is. But till then, have a good one. Don't forget to open your third eye and telepathically message us at cinefanpod at gmail.com. Set your chronoscope dial to the future setting and peruse cinematicfanpodcast.wordpress.com. Hunker over your ham radio as your keen ears listen for the ghostly voices tweeting on our Twitter at cinematicfanta1. Exchange all of your money into Republic credits and donate at our Patreon page at patreon.com slash cinefanpodcast. Ending transmission now.